Look, up on the slopes. What is that? Well, it looks like a pair of cross-country skiers going downhill. No, it must be some alpine skiers with broken bindings. Wait, on closer inspection, it's... Those Telly Guys. Well, Morgan, here we are. Where are we? Everest Snow Sports in Bright. Now, is it Everest Snow Sports, Simon, or Everest Sports? Everest Sports. We're here with Simon Head, who is the owner of this business. Um, welcome to the show, Simon. Thanks for having me. And uh, no, thanks for having us. And what a great setting we're in. We're surrounded by all sorts of backcountry gear and alpine gear, I should say. And just behind me are some uh, old 75mm boots that are actually going out for a, a steal, some crispies. 200 bucks. That is an absolute bargain. Old yeah. tech. Can't even give them away anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to send some to Sam Ferguson. I know he's about a 30.5. So. Yeah. Well, my size, I'll certainly uh, I'd grab them for sure. But Br- Bright yellow and beautiful. But we're here in this in this store because this is obviously probably the most substantial, at least Telemark store, close to home. I live in Mount Beauty. So, kind of really interested to hear your story and how this business came about and, and how you started skiing, I suppose. So, maybe we can start there, Simon. How did you yep. get into skiing? Uh, my father was a very keen skier. He uh, started skiing up. His first trip to Mount Hotham was 1948. So, when he used to get the train up and... Go up on horseback on Bonacord Spur and all that sort of stuff. He's got some great stories. And um, I wonder if we could get him on, actually, because he used to ski. There's a pair of wooden skis over in the corner there, which are basically, he made those, and they are, in essence, a modern telemark setup with a cable bond. Right. What, what did he make them out of? Uh, Tassie ash. <laughs> Screw on metal edges, a NATO cable binding, and that's how they used to get around. And it's actually... Dare I say it? Real seal skins. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Simba, the dog here, is just kind of cowed into the corner as he said that. <laughs> um, different times. Different yes. times. Uh, so, Dad was very keen. So, right from, um, I'm a child of the 60s. So, I started skiing in the late 60s as a kid up at Hotham mm-hmm. uh, before grooming. And the old aunt lived in fear of the Brockhoff Pommer as a little kid. So, yeah, that's where we grew up skiing. And then I got into bushwalking. And then when I hit about 14 or 15 and I'd start paying for my own tow ticket, it was like gone to pair of cross-country ski. And then really from there, I think my first real trip was a Cleandra to Cozzy trip on a little pair of unedged wooden skis. My memory serves me. It was Clister. Clister and Waxes. Yep. Uh, H-frame pair, Paddy Palin's Para tent. was <laughs> just... I look back on it now and just, yeah, shake my head. Yeah. So, how long was that trip? Uh, about a week. Yeah. And then I was hooked. Absolutely hooked. So, from there, most of my skiing was touring in snow rather than going out to Telemark. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to Telemark basically on a pair of probably E99s or Kahu XCDs or something like that. And then really, when I got into business and realised we could meld the two, that's when we started developing stuff like the Morado Step Telemark. You guys ever skied on that? No. That was the ski that basically changed it in Australia. It was a single camber pattern base, and it you could turn it really well. So this is an Australian-made ski? No, no, no. made by Morado. Mo- oh, Morado, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Who are now defunct, but we... I mean, this is back in the 90s, mm-hmm. early 90s. I used to ski patrol at Mount Sterling, and I remember taking a couple of pairs up to trial up there, and it was just... That just made such a difference. It was incredible. 
Patton Bay Ski. Yeah, Pat- yeah. well, Patton Bay Single Camber. Yeah, wow. And yeah. then uh, Paddy Palance at the time started bringing in Swallow. And you may remember those skis. They had this half moon pattern on the base that oh, yeah. the bloke in Roville used to do with a router. Yeah. And, right. uh, <laughs> and it worked. And that, the advent going from a double camber touring ski to a single camber telemark ski, that's that's what hooked everyone at the time. But yeah, and you're talking about with the patterns there, someone doing it with a router. I suppose that's how pattern based skis would have originally started, but the pattern like went into the ski rather than yes, nowadays yes. the pattern all comes yeah, out. So it would have been yeah. significantly harder yeah. to go uphill still. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I, even back then, I remember using skins quite a lot. Yeah, look, from there, of course, the advent of plastic boots, that sort of revolutionised everything and, and actually took everything from the backcountry onto the resorts. We used to go up to places like Mount Stirling. And there'd be 100 people up there trying to do telemark turns in the bowl. And as soon as plastic boots came in and a bit of switch over to going lift-based skiing, there just wasn't the people going backcountry anymore. So it's nice to see a change. Yeah. What do you think was the, like, groundbreaking moment for telemark bindings in Australia? Like, do you, was there, like, a particular binding coming to Australia that you remember everyone was just like, yes, I, I need this and... People just started skiing sort of more telemark and maybe skiing a bit harder and like in the resort, as you say. The binding would have been the volley release system. Okay. So oh, not yeah. so much the, the binding itself, but the volley release system was, it gave people peace of mind to actually ski hard, especially in resorts. Yeah. And then take that knowledge uh, from a resort situation to a backcountry situation yeah um, and of course and that was just when boots were going heavy you know we used to sell it was called a merrill super comp which was a leather boot but it had this you know huge p-back sort of wrap around calf that was a very expensive boot you know it was a thousand dollars 30 years ago wow so, but yeah the volley release system and we sold hundreds and you- like not just you know oh, wow this is a piece of trick gear let's get six in it was like let's get 250 of these. Yeah. And you're talking about selling them. So you, what was the store that you were selling these at? Oh, so I started a store called Bogong Equipment in yep. Melbourne in 1989, which was incredibly successful with uh, the whole backcountry ski thing. And at the time climbing, um, we rode a couple of booms. And in the mid-90s in Little Burke Street, we moved from Hardware Street to Little Burke Street, I think, in 94, there was Paddy Palance was selling skis and they would have been selling probably about seven or eight hundred pairs a year uh, we were selling skis similar sort of quantities mountain designs was selling skis they would have been selling sort of 150 200 pairs bush and mountain sports would have been selling skis you know two to three hundred pairs and even the downhill ski stores like Oski and what have you they had ranges of cross-country skis and, and backcountry stuff back then mm. and then some of the suburban stores amc wilderness shop out in box hill yeah you know these guys were selling you know, really serious quantities of ski. So we um, we now import and distribute Alpina. There's a free plug. And <laughs> I've seen some of their figures from the mid-90s. Uh, and they were importing, you know, four, 5,000 pairs of NBC boots every year. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it was huge business. Yeah, it's where it's, you wonder where it's gone because, you know, you talk about Paddy Pallon Mountain Designs and Bogong Equipment selling skis. I know Bogong does still sell skis, but it's not a particularly 
it's large not amount. It, no, nowhere no, near. Can, no. Look, they, um, what it was. But uh, but AMC still going strong, and I think the Wilderness uh, Wilderness Shop sells quite a few. Um, AMC AJ's, uh, you know, they've just taken over the Fisher distribution in Australia. So that'll be interesting to see what happens with their backcountry side. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, for any store to be sustainable, you have to be profitable. For sure. Okay. If you, if you can't make money out of doing it, you eventually will die. And what makes money for most people at the moment is Alpine Yep. So, and Fisher have a very strong brand there. And, you know, we sell a lot of it. And, you know, with the tech change for telemark stuff, there's a lot of shop as you see. You know, we've got plastic 75 mil boots going out for $199. That cost us $500, and we can't even sell them there. So for a store to change over to NTN and put in a range of boots and a range of binding, like, you have to be able to justify it with sales. Yeah, like I suppose up front it's costly, but in the long run, you know, it will it will save you. And you were just telling us before about how well, many how many, how many NTN bindings you've sold yeah. uh, in the last little while. Yeah, yeah but everything backcountry at the moment is huge. You know, with the coronavirus and the resort openings and et cetera, et cetera, there's been a huge pushback into backcountry. Yeah. And backcountry's been growing over the last couple of years anyway. So have you had customers come in with the objective to get a binding that will service perhaps both, but looking for this oh, season absolutely. to go into the backcountry? Absolutely. Yeah. We talked yeah. about that with Brian a bit earlier yeah. in the yeah. season. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, look, most of the setups we sell, uh, both telemark and alpine touring are very much for both yeah you know, and alpine touring stuff now most people only want one one setup and they'll take it on the resorts and then take it back country yeah. and this the gear now is designed to do it yeah you know especially the big sort of free ride bindings and boots and stuff well we we obviously love the axle and still riding 75 millimeter gear uh, um, i'd just like to butt in there uh <laughs> first i'd like to ask uh you. When was the last time you skied NTN? <laughs> well, that's a good never. that's a good question, never. Simon. And I'm just going to think back and go, never actually. Right. Okay. <laughs> what, what about you, Molly? No, never. I've never skied NTN, um, and that was that was what we were talking about. But then we decided to start recording. Yeah. So, like Rich and I, and another friend of ours, Sam Ferguson, we sort of started this little bit of a, it's you know, kind of a, a jocular sort of thing, you know, we made some T-shirts and hoodies that that all said on them 75 mil ain't dead uh, yeah. because we we just really love the 75 mil gear and, you know, of course we do concede that we will probably all be on NTN, you know, within 10 years. So probably, what is probably it about the 75 mil gear that you love? Um, it's just that, they get, you know, it works for us and we, we don't see anything wrong with it at the moment and yeah. obviously, you know, the axle has the ability to be a great touring binding um, having the free pivot option and it's it's great in the resort and just um, be able to buy secondhand gear that's kind of popped up over time and you know I only found another pair of boots last year and they're fantastic and I'll, I'll probably ride them for a few more years so but they just haven't got to that point where it's the obvious option is to go into NTN yet because we've yeah. had yeah. a handful of opportunities come up with 75 millimeter yeah. stuff still yeah because yeah. you can you know a lot of people a lot of customers come in and say, I have to go into a new system, but I love my 75mm because of the feel of it. Mm. And you can get that with NTN. 
Well, depending yeah. On, depending on the binding you buy, of course. Well, I have heard that um, the... We were talking about the Mejo earlier, but I've heard that you can really set it up with the same sort of feel as yeah, yeah. a 75mm boot. Yeah. yeah. It's... Um, again, as I was saying before, I've, I've skied every binding but the links, and the Mejo has that... Just that beautiful, sweet feel. Mm. The, I guess the clunkiest of all the bindings is probably the Rockefeller, but for a lot of people... The Rotterfeller is a great binding because it's so strong. They seem beefy. Great, yeah. So beefy. And they're, this may cause some consternation, but they're free heel skiers rather than telemark skiers. So they're, you know, telemarking is part of free healing and free healing is just skiing around with your heel prep. Yeah. And so a lot of people like the ability of skiing fast on a Rotterfeller. Because that's what the NTN system gives you. It's just that precision. But uh, even on the tightest of cable systems, the the level of control you get over your ski on an NTN is a uh, height just so much more. Yeah, it does take a while to get used to that. Yeah, all right. And where I was going before, I was just having a look at the some bindings you've got here, and the most popular binding that's kind of Going out of the shop here is the major, or uh, yeah, I think so. But I think it's because we're. I mean, let's face it. There's only a couple of telemark stores in Australia, yes. um, and uh, we're. I think we are the only people who sell. Yeah, I don't think I've seen it anywhere else before. Um, Rhythm Sports used to buy them, but um, they don't anymore. But I, I'm not sure what they're doing in telemark stuff anymore. And Bruce up at Wilmer Sports doesn't sell them. Yeah, he seems to have but, a lot of 22 yeah. design stuff up there. Yeah, yeah. And is this the latest one? Or? That's the latest. They mm. are introducing the 3.0. Oh, okay. So yeah. I've had to... I can't even show up to. I've got a couple of pairs. Oh. Um, but um, I'm not allowed to sell it until the 1st of September. Some rules around it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it's very similar. Yeah. Like, there's not... I think it's more of a, a marketing... Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Supply and demand. Yeah. Uh, yeah, look, it's um, when you know, he had issues with the 2.0 and the original, mm. and then instead of calling it the 3.0, he actually called it the 2.1, so people kept thinking it still had some issues. And so I think just from a marketing point of view, he's delineated and gone, nah, let's just call it the 3. We should probably ask you how you came to be here like what um was the process behind setting up this shop you've obviously were bogong but what 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 happened between being at bogong equipment and then being here like you've got some other stuff in between there with mont and yeah the like as well yeah look we bought um i bought into mont uh in the mid 90s and at that time the australian market was in a huge state of flux, if you like. Kathmandu was coming in, mm-hmm. um, and they you may not remember this, but uh, there was a, a sleeping bag war. A sleeping bag a war? A sleeping bag war. So, they like a war uh, that you were you were physically in the sleeping bag fighting no, other no, people? No, 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 no. <laughs> Between uh, uh, basically Mont and Jane Hake and Paddy May and Mountain Designs. And so what happened, Jane Hake... You all know who Jane H is? No. So Jane H. How old are you guys? 25. 30. 
Yeah. Right, this is all pre your time then. <laughs> yeah. This is all dragons Actually, and really knights nice to us. It's really nice to see yeah. youngsters on Telemark stuff. Oh, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I've got it. Yeah, um, I guess uni kind of pushed us that way yeah. a little bit. Yeah. So, um, Jane H was a, a probably the premium sleeping bag manufacturer in Australia, and they were uh, sold through uh, Paddy Palin chains, uh, Scout Outdoor Centres, and uh, Mont was sold through the Intertrek chain stores. So they're all the independent stores, mm. and uh, yeah, someone's obviously making their own. Katmandu came along, and uh, they bought uh, J&H sleeping bags at the time and then sold them at 35% off. Oh, so wow. they were selling them at cost. Yeah. <laughs> and Snow Guns Scared Outdoor Centre matched it. Mount Design matched it. Mm. Uh, Mont sort of matched it. And all the retailers matched it. Anyway, it nearly sent Mont broke. And it did send J&H broke. Um, and... So in that process, I became a partner in Tamont. So, which was at the time was great. But uh, we had, I had then had uh, access into design and their processes. At that time, I led the big push out of Gore-Tex. Away from Gore-Tex, yeah, yeah. And to Hydronaut. Is that Hydronaut? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, was any other fabric, but Gore-Tex was Mont. Um, were they out of Canberra? Is that where they started? Yeah, and I'll put my hand up here. I also led the push um, to shut down our manufacturing in Australia and put it overseas. Right. Because everything about manufacturing in Australia was about doing and, and making something in the quickest possible time. Yeah. Because labour was so expensive. So a sleeping bag, a winter-based sleeping bag, might take 280 minutes to make. You did everything you possibly could to try and make it in 260. Whereas I said, this is this is just like we should be trying to make the best sleeping bag we can. And if that takes 500 minutes, let's take 500 minutes. Mm. Yeah. So we did. Took it to, we actually took our production lines over to Fiji. Okay. At the time. Yeah. So, which, and that's what a lot of major manufacturers were doing too. Yeah. So it wasn't about, you know, going somewhere to make a product cheap was going somewhere to access cheaper labour to make a product better. I think I think MacPack did something pretty similar, did they not as well? Like out uh, of New Zealand? Yeah, well that's after the original owner sold. Yeah, okay. Yeah. MacPack mm-hmm. were bought by Dan Cameron. Oh there you go. Who who owns Katmandu? Who did own Katmandu? Yeah. Oh right. Yeah. So, She's yeah, now since sold it. But now, now it's bloody raise outdoors, backpack no, 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 sort um, of thing. Super cheap auto group. So, riding, camping, fishing. Oh, great. Yeah. Quite and a so, what's really, yeah. what's really interesting, I find, with that chain is they're now, Macpack as a brand, uh, you look at some of their imagery and uh, used to be all about the mountains. Yeah. Right? Uh, in one of their latest uh, catalogues or, or they had a, Guy standing on a train station drinking a cup of coffee. Yeah, that's you know, right. You know, and it's, well, it's, so it's all about the down jacket. You yeah, know, it's really yeah. funny. Well, it's it's the same with Kathmandu. It's it's yeah. I suppose it's and and it's all about you know supply and demand. It's like where their main yes, tar- target audience is, and it's just about travel. It's like you know it appeals yeah. to the you know the young yeah, 20, right. 20 something year old that wants to go. 
yeah. you know, cruise around Melbourne or travel through Europe and it's like, hey, you need a down jacket and you need right. a for drinking coffee. 50 that's right. for drinking litre coffee. pack and yeah. you need some nice looking yeah. boots that are trendy and yeah, somewhat right. practical. That's right. And, you know, at the, you know, before a lot of the brands uh, were opened up for Australia, uh, and so it was a lot of local brands back in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, it was really, really hard fought. And it was before big business got into it, too. Yeah. I mean, the people who own MacPac now, you know, it's a company worth hundreds and hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars. You know, they're not outdoors people. No. They're business people. Yeah. So, and I think that's rolling back to your original question, why I've ended up in Bright. Uh, that's why I've ended up in Bright. Because this is where you do it. So this is where I want to live. Yeah, so you're and tying your passion in with your business as yeah, well. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, we... One of the reasons you can't find this sort of gear in a shop in Little Burke Street is because this shop in Little Burke Street, I'd be paying quarter of a million dollars in rent. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. Place like Brock, you'd pay $20,000 in rent. So... It just, you know, we are, this business in this little store in a little country town is actually more profitable than when I had a multi-million dollar turnover in a, in a major store in, in the city. I suppose because people can just buy stuff online now too, so is that... Uh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Look, we uh, we sell a lot of stuff, especially over, to overseas markets. Um, and the same on, you know, a lot of stuff comes into Australia. Um, and you either adopt to that or you adapt to it or you die crying about it. And we get a lot of people coming in, uh, you know, who've bought a pair of tally boots and a pair of tally bindings or, or ski boots, you know, and they come in and they uh, want them all mounted up and stuff. That's fine. So you made the move from Melbourne in, was it 2015 or something up here? No, no 2011. 2011. Yeah. So um, my family's originally from this area. Oh, okay. Yep. So my mum was born down on Buffalo River and mm. we go back quite a long time. So I just the amount of times I used to go up in the high country and what have you. That's what I used to do. And so I try and still do it a lot. Kids is a bit of a you know, bit harder, but you know, I tend to go out three or four weeks every year by myself and cruise around. Where's your kind of go to spot in the back country? Certainly the Alpine National Park. Having ski toured right around the world, the what I call the Grand Traverse, which is up and over Bayong, so up Estale. Mm-hmm. Down Quartz Ridge, over the Grey Hills, and then across the High Plains, down into the Upper West Kiwa, Blair, and then Blair Hut. yeah, down into Blair's Hut, and then um, depending on snow conditions, back up onto Hotham, crossing over, and then back out the feather, feather top across up the race. Tina Spur? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, sucking for punishment. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been up and down Diamantina Spur, I think three times each in winter. I haven't done it for 15 years. No, yeah. I'm never going to do it again. Pretty that would be uh, and then, you know, down into Harrogate. Yeah, and wow. that, yeah. for an eight-day uh, tour, rivals anything in the world. Unreal. Yeah. Spurs. Sounds good. And so I tend to try and do it every year. Wow. Good Grey Hills, I don't know if you know, this just had a bit of a facelift too. Over summer, they've cleared the track along the top there. Oh, okay. Inevitably, some trees will come down, but yeah, apparently yeah. it's in a really yeah. good condition. Yeah, right. Excellent. Mm. Yeah. Excellent. That would be an unreal trip. Yeah, well, I'm 
doing it with my niece and her husband first week of September, I think. Well, last week of August now, actually, because of the Backcountry Festival. Oh, yes. Yeah, we're looking forward to that. That should be really quite good. Oh, Cam's done a fantastic yeah. job on that one. So what's your involvement with that this year? Oh, helping with the setup of the expo and dealing yep. with all the... Mm. So I used to own and run, I started uh, the Australian Bicycle Trade Show back yeah, in okay. 2009, which we used to run at the exhibition building Santa Carlton. So corralling a dozen backcountry ski exhibitors is much easier than a couple of hundred <laughs> bike exhibitors. Wow. <laughs> and the way Cam's done it too, where you know, no one's charged, it's it's a free event, is, yeah, it's fantastic. And it, he should be very proud of what he's achieved actually there. Yeah, we're really looking forward uh, to it. Uh, did you go last year? No, I had a, a family thing on. I went to the first one at Falls yep. Creek and I thought, you know, yeah. it certainly wasn't as big as it was the second year, but I thought yeah. it was really good anyway. Yep. The vibe was really yep. cool. Yep. Only a few of us sitting around a fire and, and yep. you know, sharing stories or whatever. And then last year, it just went boom. So, yeah. I'm looking yeah, forward to it. Uh, actually, listening to Cam on your podcast uh, last week, he's so right that um, the beer up on top of Christmas Hill. Yeah, that sounded and, awesome. And, of course, we had this unbelievable weather. You know, it was just, it was a full-on blizzard. It was this fantastic environment where they had 40 or 50 centimetres of snow. There were sort of wind slabs. There was, a you know, little fluff avalanches going off everywhere. And there were people up there who had never been backcountry. Yeah. They were going to the backcountry festival and they were going, oh, holy shit. This is actually serious. Yes, the real. You know, it wasn't. It was real. So it wasn't this beautiful summer day yeah. where you just sort of took one over the lock and cruise around and. And what a what a great um, way to get people into it uh, oh, yeah. off the bat, yes. knowing that it is a serious yeah. thing. Because I've often, yeah. you know, up at um, you know feather top of ran into yeah. some people that perhaps don't know how serious it is <laughs> and uh, ask where the best place to ski is, and they're wearing jeans and yeah, and, yeah. and have to painfully yeah. say that maybe this isn't the place. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, that's yeah, unreal. I can relate to that story up at Feather Top. And I remember getting up to Fed Hut one year and it had taken us 10 hours to get up Bungalow Spur. Wow. There was so much snow, so many trees interlocked. Yeah. yeah. It was just this nightmare. And my wife doesn't use the C word very often. <laughs> that's a bad time. You know, after eight hours of slogging up and just falling over, and, you know, it's just... Anyway, we got into the hut and uh, there were a dozen very cold, very hungry snowboarders. Wearing jeans. Yeah, well, wearing just all the stupid stuff. (laughs) And the thing that I remember the most was looking over and there was a guy shivering in a sleeping bag and the sleeping bag, I shit you not, it was this target that had like cartoon characters on the outside. <laughs> it's just this thing. And so we, they couldn't get their stoves lit. Oh, no. In, in the hut, in probably. The hut. Yeah. In the hut. Yeah. Couldn't get the, you know, so we basically came in, boiled up a whole lot of, you know, made them hot chocolates, all this sort of stuff. Oh, it's just. You saved the, but, the lives of many Oh, no, no, no. They didn't save their lives. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, what happens a lot too, um, you know, I've done a lot of guiding up there and you see. People get to Fed Hut because Fed Hut's fairly easy to get to. Yeah. And they, uh, I imagine it's, I've got a few mates who surf and, you know, they tell these stories of going down to Bells Beach for the first time and there's these great big waves coming in and they're sitting on the beach going, oh, 
Jeez, I'm not feeling too well today. <laughs> well, I have to go, go out there. And it's the sun, Fed Hut. They get 150 metres above Fed Hut. Yeah. They look up on a feather top mm. and they go, yeah, no. No, I'm not yeah. going up there. Yeah, well, I suppose sometimes I've thought about it, like compared to Mount Bogong, which like I've, I've done much more skiing yeah. at Mount Bogong than Feathertop, but I've yeah. still done, you yeah. know, several days at Mount Feathertop. But I think that, yeah, there's there's not really anywhere to hide at Mount Feathertop. Like Mount Bogong, there's a few sort of sections of easier yeah. terrain, like down yeah. near Cleve Coal Hut or yeah. even just Can Gully is not particularly yeah. steep. But at Mount Feathertop, there's only mm. the little slope that yeah. sort of comes back down towards Federation Hut. But even still, it's, it's a bit off camber yeah. and, you know, it's still oh, yeah. pretty steep. But, you know, if you head over towards... Like the mountain proper, then you know you can't. It's yeah, very steep. Yeah. <laughs> but well, it's the same at uh, up there, South Spur. Actually, I've met yeah. a lot of groups who are camping at the hut and just below the tree line, and they don't make it above it. Because mm-hmm. when, when you you make it that extra hundred meters up, and you see Estale yeah. rising up, and it's a real looks like a real mountain, and of course it looks really steep, and they just go. You feel the exposure yeah, creeping, yeah, don't right. you? Yeah, yeah. That's right. on a windy day. That's right. It's not pleasant yeah. skin up mount. Bogong. <laughs> and reverse that too. What the other thing I've found too is people up at Cleve Coal who have got in there on great conditions, but they can't get out. Yeah. You know, they're going back out down Esther and it's iced over. Yeah. And yeah. they get up and they look down it and they go, let's go back to the hut for a cup of tea. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it will be interesting this year. Yeah, with, well, as we were saying before, yeah. the increase in backcountry stuff, people wanting to get out. Yeah. Who knows what we'll see. Hopefully, but all the, a lot of people yeah. making the right decisions. But all the all yeah. the all the backcountry awareness is good, and I don't know we I don't know how much you touched on it just before. Like, what sort of things were happening at the Australian or the Victorian Backcountry Festival? Were there like little workshops on a- avalanche safety? They had and a things lot like of workshops that? happening, and run by a lot of experienced people. Yeah, which was really good. They had Cam said he quite, had Bill Barker. In. Yeah, quite a few of the ski patrol guys were involved. Um, Bill's just a legend. Been there, done that. Skis all over the world. Yeah. Um, Mark Frost, who's the um, local ambulance uh, team leader over here. I should plug him. He's my boss. I volunteer as an ambulance community officer in Brock. Um, so, and he is probably one of the most qualified backcountry rescue people in Australia. He was leading a couple of workshops. So every major accident that happens on Bogong, uh, Frosty goes to. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So... He was up there last year when that guy unfortunately passed away. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. But we do quite a bit of work with the two companies who are running all the avalanche awareness courses, Alpine Access, and I apologise, I can't remember what the second one is, but uh, they've been directing a lot of their customers here to hire all the AVI gear and stuff. They're booked out. You know, they've got, they, I think they're running three courses this year in Victoria. This is Alpine Access. I think there's 20 people in each. Yeah. Whereas two or three years ago, they weren't even running courses. I think the awareness from punters is there and the thirst for knowledge. Mm, you know, yeah. we get a lot of people coming in just want to talk about backcountry awareness. And for a lot of people too. And it's also very um, obvious a lot of people get a lot of information online now. Yeah. There's some very good stuff online. We we import Autovox equipment in mm. Australia mm. and they constantly telling me how many Australians and New Zealanders are logging on and doing their online courses and all this sort of stuff. So it is most people we speak to are wanting to do, especially avalanche awareness, for their trips overseas rather than their backcountry tours in Australia. But that will benefit backcountry tours in Australia anyway. 
Because it is dangerous. Do you feel like, a, um, as a whole, people don't take um, that sort of thing seriously enough? Backcountry safety in Australia, or do you think it's, or do you think some people blow it up to be more of an issue than it actually needs to be here? I think it's. I think it's pretty healthy realization that it is dangerous out there. Um, I think you know you look at the, especially some of the the death statistics and injury statistics in Europe, especially where they're more readily available, with how many people die in avalanches and rady rady rah. It's not a lot of accidents happen in Australia. Mm. And when I think of backcountry awareness in Australia, the dangerous stuff is flipping on off. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's, it's just a different kind of awareness. Uh, I think New Zealand is a fantastic training ground for the you know, traditional sort of objective dangers of avalanche and rockfall and uh, crevasse rescue and all that sort of stuff. And I think any ski tourer who's thinking of going overseas should do some stuff in New Zealand because it's a, if you can travel around competently in New Zealand, you can go anywhere in the world. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of the things that does make me laugh is people who come in and buy avalanche packs and uh, receivers, transceivers, and... Uh, they then think and they state, this is great because there's a slope I want to go and ski. Yeah, there's this, there's this backcountry area in Japan that I've been looking at and you can't go in there without avalanche stuff. And you, you have to say, well, mate, it's, this is not going to save you. This doesn't allow you to actually go into those areas if they're unsafe. And um, there's, a, there's a sort of lack of awareness of that. Yeah. And dare I say, it's all snowboarding. <laughs> yeah, and our, our friend Crowy that we had on the podcast last week, he, he, he mentioned that, that, you know, while backcountry, um, you know, mitigating things like a transceiver and an avalanche pack are, are great, you know, ultimately if the conditions are dangerous, then, you know, you shouldn't really be, be skiing in that particular yeah, area anyway. Yeah. And I think that's probably something that, you know, people might, that, that might slip to the back of their minds occasionally. Mm. Definitely. Um, yeah, but you'd rather have the gear than not. Absolutely. And, yeah. Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. Now, if you get caught in a slide, you'd rather have the gear. Mm-hmm. And actually, you want your best mate to have the good gear. Yeah. And you want he's got to have the metal shovel. shovel. Yeah, 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 you can yeah, take his plastic shovel if he's got a crap. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, That's right. Now, the store's just opened here, so we might need to wrap it up so um, we can get you back to business. But... Feels like we're only just scratching the surface here. But oh, we talk forever about gear. Yeah, um, and the history gear. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Hopefully, there's some demos at the Backcountry Festival that we can maybe give NTN our, yes. our first go. Morgs. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're putting NTN in higher this year. All right. And um, I've just found out the sort of sixteen pairs of Rotterfeller bindings I had ordered to go on our higher stuff aren't going to arrive. So we're going to have at least half a dozen pairs of Mejo's. And this is the sort of scale I want to mount them up on. I don't mount them up on any cheap stuff. We're just going to put them on the best skis we can. So and they're made in France as well. So what's the uh, what's the going price for a pair of Mejo 2.1s? Simon? Price is long forgotten when quality remains. Oh yeah. no, no, yeah, I can see that. It's a, it's it's a, it's a quality piece of equipment, but I'm guessing they are they're pretty exy. Yeah. Yeah, this setup here is worth about. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> now look, the what's the binding worth? Um, like eight hundred bucks. The recommended retail for the binding is eleven hundred dollars. 
Whoa. Mm. Um, well, considering the recommended retail on the Rotterfeller this year is eight ninety nine, the Lynx is also eight ninety nine. Yeah. Lynx doesn't come with its brakes. Um, and these are handmade by French virgins. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll take a pair right now. But <laughs> <laughs> well, boy virgins, I'm not yeah. being sexist. Yeah, yeah, boy yeah, yeah. No, no it looks it looks quality. Well, we might need to wrap it up here. Simon, thanks so much for coming onto the show. Really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, we're just going to scratch the surface here. We might have to come back again and have another chat. But what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Uh, through the front door, actually, is, yeah. is probably the nicest. Yeah, come into the shop and have a chat. We've certainly enjoyed it, and I know those people will too. And yeah. it's it's great to have a store like this so close to home, yeah, as well. Um, yeah, that sells lots of quality, lots equipment. of quality gear. Yeah. And as you said, quality. There's no price for quality well, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And look, we um, this year with uh, doing all our backcountry hire stuff, um, our hours. You know, we've actually got to work this year. Yep. So I can't just sort of open at 10 and close at 5 and do all that sort of stuff. Mm. So so for the viewers, what are your hours throughout winter? Uh, be Friday nights, all day Saturday, and then all day Sunday, um, and then during the week. If it's snowing heavy and we've got uh, lots of bookings for higher gear, we'll just be open. There you go. Yeah. So if you're in Bright, drop into Everest Sports and have a look around. You never know, you might walk out of Tailmark Skier. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Absolutely. Hopefully. hopefully. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, Thank Simon. Cool. Cheers. Thanks. Those telly guys hope you have enjoyed this program. We'd love to hear from you. Please get in touch at thosetellyguys at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe for more fun episodes. Otherwise, you can find us on Instagram. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.